there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you enjoy this episode from our series, Famous Fates. It's about the impactful lives and shocking deaths of history's most influential people. To hear even more episodes each week, subscribe to Famous Fates exclusively on Spotify. The attention of the nation is focused on the state of Oregon. You could very well determine who will be the next president of the United States. And, based on the results today, Senator Robert Kennedy is not yet the next commander-in-chief. Where is he? He's right... Wait, where did he go? Mark, is Bobby with you? No. I saw him leave before they announced. Ethel, are you okay? I just need to find him. Bobby? Bobby? There you are. I've been looking all over for you. We lost, Ethel. We lost in Oregon, Bobby. We didn't lose it. It's over. It's not. No Kennedy has ever lost an election. And no Kennedy will. This was one state. You've already got Nebraska and Indiana. Let's face it. I appeal best to people who have problems. And I can't wish for people to have them. I wasn't raised like that. America has problems, Bobby. Our country is in danger. Not just from foreign enemies, but above all... Our own misguided policies. (laughs) You memorize my speeches? No. I listen to them. And memorize the important parts. But you want to know the most important part? You didn't just write that. You believe in that. And it won't stop being true just because you lost one state. I didn't marry a man who gives up, and you didn't marry a woman who backs out after one strike. I love you. I know. Our 11 kids are proof of that. Come on, let's go to California. The race isn't over. Plenty of people with problems there. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Famous Fates, a ParCast original exclusive to Spotify. Each week, we'll release five fresh episodes centered around a common theme, such as Hollywood icons, influential women, or music legends. In each episode, we'll take a close look at the remarkable life of a different person. With the help of voice actors, we'll dramatize their incredible lives, reimagining their greatest and weakest moments. Then we'll examine their controversial deaths. Some deaths came too soon, some remained shrouded in mystery, and some changed the world forever. Today we're covering Robert F. Kennedy, also known as Bobby Kennedy, or RFK. Just like his older brother, John, Bobby's promising political career was cut short by an assassination. But in that brief time, he left an indelible mark on American politics. 
You can find episodes of Famous Fates and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Famous Fates for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Famous Fates in the search bar. Famous Fates is a Spotify exclusive, so you can only find it on Spotify. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Now, back to the life of Bobby Kennedy. Robert Francis Kennedy, one of the most remarkable underdog politicians in American history, was born on November 20th, 1925. The third of four sons in a family of nine children wasn't always in the spotlight especially when it came to his father, Joseph Kennedy Sr. Mm -hmm. You may remember this from our episode on JFK, but it's always worth mentioning again. Joe put all of his focus on Joseph Jr. and John. That's right. Because of that, Bobby found himself attached to his mother, Rose Kennedy. Joe often called him a weak boy and a disappointment to his family. He was a runt to his father's eyes. That's tough. That's the Kennedys for you. Carrying that last name meant carrying big responsibilities. Joseph Kennedy Sr. was part of Massachusetts' line of political elite that included senators, mayors, and congressmen. But he wanted his kids to go further. He wanted Joe Jr. to be the first Kennedy to become president of the United States. Just a very small and simple aspiration. (laughs) While Joe was busy setting the political future for his older children, Bobby had time to figure out who he was and what he liked without his father's interference. Or interest, to be honest. He became an avid researcher of American history, decorating his bedroom with pictures of U.S. presidents and filling his shelves with books on the Civil War. He was also a stamp collector and once received a handwritten letter from Franklin Roosevelt, with whom he shared his interest in philately. Bobby even took on a newspaper route as a way to get money without having to go to his father. But that didn't last long. When his mother found out that the family chauffeur was driving him in a Rolls Royce so that he could make his deliveries, she forced him to quit the side job. A short-lived and embarrassing moment for the Kennedys that pushed Joe Sr. further away from his younger son. Despite his father's disdain, Bobby continued to search for his approval asking his father to write him letters expressing his opinions on different political events and World War II. He wanted to learn how to think like a politician, even if it meant asking for opinions that weren't his own. World War II played a big part in Bobby's rise to a more important role in the family. While he was still in high school and incapable to enlist, his older brothers were deemed war heroes. JFK, still in his younger years, rescued most of his PT boat crew after it was wrecked by a Japanese destroyer. And Joe Jr. volunteered for a delicate and secretive mission for the government to pilot a plane filled with dynamite toward an enemy target and parachuting to safety. But the plane exploded halfway there before he could reach enemy lines. Joe Jr. was dead, along with Joseph Sr.'s hopes for his eldest son to become president. Joe Sr. didn't waste any time. His attention shortly shifted to John Kennedy, and after Bobby graduated from law school, his father decided that it would be up to him to make John's path to politics a reality. It was the first time Bobby was trusted with such an important role in his father's eyes. He was no longer the runt. Hmm. Bobby tried really hard to step up and become the strong kid that Joe Sr. never thought he'd be. When he went to Harvard, he worked his way up to first string on the football team. And he did it by showing up an hour early to practice and staying an hour late. His stock in the family line was starting to gain momentum. 
He was also the first of the Kennedy's boys to tie the knot. Ethel Skakel, a wealthy and devout Catholic Bostonian, was his perfect match, if only for one thing. My parents were not bedrock Democrats. They were conservative Republicans. But my consciousness of politics when I was growing up? None whatsoever. I met Bobby on a skiing trip. He was my friend Jean's brother. He was standing in front of a roaring fireplace in a living room. I saw him and thought, wow, pretty great. It was love at first sight. We made a bet right away about who could get down the mountain faster. I won't tell you who won. Bobby and Ethel ended up having 11 children, but I'm getting ahead of myself right now. In 1951, Bobby began working as a lawyer in the U.S. Department of Justice. That same year, he joined his brother John in a seven-week trip throughout Israel, India, Pakistan, Vietnam, and Japan. Because of their age difference and the fact that John had spent some of his time with his older brother Joe, the trip around Asia was the first time the two siblings had actually spent quality time together. Those seven weeks were enough for John and Bobby to become more than close friends. They became political partners, with Bobby serving as John's campaign manager. In 1952, Bobby led the successful campaign that elected John to the Senate. John's victory was not only just of great importance to the Kennedy family, turning him into a serious potential presidential candidate, but also served as a way for Bobby to finally end his father's negative opinions of him. During John's campaign to the U.S. Senate, Bobby gained a reputation as a ruthless, rude, and impatient young man. Come in. You wanted to see me, Senator. Jesus, Bobby, you're my brother. No more of this senator crap. I'll save it for when it's president, then. (laughs) You wanted to see me, Jack? Did you read the newspaper today? Yes, I... I read about five of them. It's, well, my job. It's your job being a reader? It's my job being informed. Did you see what the Post said about you? I... I didn't read the Post today. I read the Times, the Wall Street Journal, and... They said you're rude, arrogant, and an impatient kid. I just called you in to say father and I talked, and we're having the reporter retract that. Retract that? What? Why? It's freedom of speech, Jack. The reporters can say whatever they want to say. That's the First Amendment. That's not the point. They know they can't mess with me, so they decide to mess with you instead. Jack, let me tell you something I learned from years of being ignored by father. I don't care if anyone likes me, as long as they like you. You're in the spotlight, and it's my job to keep you there. I don't care how many two-page articles people write about me. Two-page, huh? I uh, thought you said you hadn't read it. It's my job to be informed, Senator. In 1953, Bobby Kennedy was appointed by Republican Senator Joseph McCarthy as assistant counsel of the U.S. Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. The average American can do very little insofar as digging communist espionage agents out of our government is concerned. They, they, they must depend upon those of us whom they send down here to man the watchtowers of the nation. The thing that the American people can do is to be vigilant day and night to make sure they don't have communists teaching the sons and daughters of America. Now I realize that the minute anyone tries to get a communist out of a college, out of a university, There will be raised the phony cry that you're interfering with academic freedom. I would like to emphasize that 
there is no academic freedom where a communist is concerned. Although he later claimed that he still retained a fondness for McCarthy, Bobby Kennedy resigned from the job less than a year after he was appointed for the position. Kennedy disapproved of McCarthy's aggressive methods of gathering intelligence on suspected communists. Despite the fact that he'd lasted only eight months on the job, Bobby was included in a list of 10 outstanding young men of 1954, created by the U.S. Junior Chamber of Commerce. Of course, it helped that his father had arranged the nomination. Just a small, insignificant detail, of course. In the year of 1956, Bobby joined his first presidential campaign. He worked as an aide to Democratic candidate Adlai Stevenson in order to learn firsthand how campaigns work. It was all in preparation for his older brother's future, of course. But what's curious about it is that Bobby was so unimpressed by the Democratic Party's candidate that he ended up voting for the Republican candidate instead. According to Bobby, Stevenson never offered strong positions in any specific matter, sometimes taking forever to make simple decisions. On election day, Bobby marked his ballot for Dwight Eisenhower, or as history would come to know him, the 34th president of the United States. A year after that, in 1957, Bobby began working as chief counsel to the Senate Select Committee on Improper Activities in the Labor Field. He gained national attention for investigating corruption in the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, a trade union led by the infamous Jimmy Hoffa. Well, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters was the U.S.'s largest, richest, and one of the most corrupt unions at the time. After having dedicated most of his life on topics such as ethics and moral quandaries in politics, it was clear that Bobby was the right choice for the task. I declined to answer on the ground of the answer. I declined the answer on the ground of incriminating myself. Somebody who's been successful as you, Hoffa, can remember I declined to answer that question. So don't put that act on. I'm not putting any act on. You're the one who wants the attention. The lower level Kennedy who wants to tell the people he matters to. Mr. Hoffa, you said that you thought you could do very well before a jury. Well, that's pretty ridiculous. Did you say anything to the fact- I did not. And I appeal that this should be taken out of the records. Did you say that SOB, I'll break his back to anyone? Did you make that statement after these people agreed to testify in front of a jury? I never talked to any one of those people. I'm not asking you that. Did you make that statement after the testimony was finished? Not concerning them, as far as I know it. Who did you make it about then? I don't know. I may have been discussing other matters with somebody and used it in a figure of speech. <sighs> Who did you make the statement about? I don't even remember. Well, whose back are you going to break, Mr. Hoffa? Figure of speech. I don't know what I was talking about, and I don't know what you're talking about. Who's back, Mr. Hoffa? I don't know. I said it before, and I'll say it again. Is this microphone broken? In two years presiding over the committee, Bobby brought in over 1,500 witnesses to the stand, receiving criticism for his outbursts of anger and doubts about the innocence of those who invoked the Fifth Amendment. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to the story. In 1959, Bobby stepped down from the Senate Select Committee in order to run his brother's presidential campaign. The 1960 election campaign was dominated by rising Cold War tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union. Despite his young 43 years, JFK had the foreign experience and the necessary charisma to win the Democratic primary election. 
After winning the 1960 presidential election, President-elect John F. Kennedy appointed Bobby Attorney General. It wasn't the most well-received nomination. Several publications would call Bobby inexperienced and unqualified for the position. The biggest complaint was the amount of power and influence Bobby had over JFK's day-to-day decisions. He was a campaign director, an attorney general, chief advisor, and brother protector. Due to his background in fighting against corruption, Bobby initiated a relentless campaign against organized crime and the mafia. Convictions against organized crime figures rose by 800% during his term. (laughs) Also during his tenure, Bobby undertook one of the most energetic and persistent integration of the administration in Capitol Hill up until that point. Bobby's demands were such that he made sure every area of government began recruiting realistic levels of black and other ethnic minority workers. He even criticized Vice President Lyndon Johnson for his failure to desegregate his own office staff. Bobby then proceeded to urge JFK to take a stand on civil rights. And that's exactly what he did. We are confronted primarily with a moral issue. It is as old as the scriptures and is as clear as the American Constitution. The heart of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities, whether we are going to treat our fellow Americans as we want to be treated. If an American, because his skin is dark, cannot eat lunch in a restaurant open to the public, If he cannot send his children to the best public school available, if he cannot vote for the public officials who represent him, if in short he cannot enjoy the full and free life which all of us want, 100 years of delay have passed since President Lincoln freed the slaves, yet their heirs, their grandsons, are not fully free. They are not yet freed from the bonds of injustice, They are not yet yet freed from social and economic oppression. And this nation, for all its hopes and all its boasts, will not be fully free until all its citizens are free. Happy birthday, Bobby. Thank you. The big 3-8. Yes, the fearful 38. You got nothing to fear, my friend, other than... Oh, my God. I didn't know the president was going to show up. Yeah. Neither did I. Uh, Bobby, come here, little brother. Aren't you supposed to be in Texas? I decided to make a quick stop. 37 years old. Who would have thought you'd make it that far? 38. That's what I said. I'm glad you came, Mr. President. Still getting used to all this name-calling. Never gets old, Bobby. I can promise you that. But what am I talking about? You'll know it soon. What do you mean? Please, you're smart. You're well-read. You got the experience. You'll take that seat after me, Bobby. John, you're barely in it. Let's make sure we keep you there. Nonsense. But we can talk about it later. Tonight, we party, little brother. Also, I got you this. I can't remember the last time you gave me a present, John. Well, it was probably around the last time you called me, John. Romeo and Juliet? It's the oldest edition I could find. But I know you like those things. So I outbid a couple of senators. And by outbid, you mean you told them you wanted the book and made them back off? Semantics. Come on, you loved it. You used to say it all the time. When he shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars. And he will make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun. Juliet must have been some girl, right? 
You know they're talking about Romeo, right? Semantics, little brother. So, you like it or not? I love it. Thank you, Mr. President. The night of his 38th birthday was the night Bobby last saw his older brother. Two days later, on November 22, 1963, JFK was fatally shot in Dallas, Texas. With JFK gone, Bobby was left to carry on his legacy, alone, and very much not prepared or wishful of the spotlight. He was hurt, he was in pain, but he didn't have time to suffer. He needed to deliver, and that's exactly what he did at the Democratic National Convention of 1964. When I think of President Kennedy, I think of what Shakespeare said in Romeo and Juliet, when he shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars, and he shall make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun. When he finished his goodbye speech, Bobby left alone. He hid in the corridors of the event and wept. Days after the assassination of JFK, Lyndon Johnson took the seat, and with the office of vice president available, Bobby was considered as a potential candidate for the position in the 1964 presidential election. But Bobby had no intention in rising to power due to his brother's tragedy. He chose not to pursue the vice president chair, not only out of respect for his brother, but also due to the fact that Bobby and LBJ had a reputation of very much disliking each other. He might have denied the seat at that time, but it didn't take long for Bobby to want to go back to political life. Nine months after JFK's assassination, he left the cabinet to campaign as a senator for New York. Well, needless to say, RFK was elected, though the transition from being the president's most trusted advisor to one of a hundred senators was not the easiest one. His younger brother, Ted, became an ally, having served the Senate himself, but not without a few concerns. For Ted and most other senators, Bobby had a reputation of being well-prepared for any sort of debate, but his tendency to speak to other senators in a blunt way caused him to be unpopular with a lot of his colleagues. Bobby, up until that point, never had to hold back on his words. He had been an attorney general and his brother's trusted advisor. But times had changed. The man who was once the most trusted advisor to the president, and who was used to running covert operations, suddenly couldn't even join the hearings. He had to start from the bottom as a junior senator. Well, the times were changing, and Bobby was now constantly being put in the spotlight. There was nobody he was campaigning for other than himself, and that was a first for him. Everyone was watching him. It was the first time he had to stand up and speak for himself. Well, Bobby had spoken for his brother and on behalf of his brother most of his life. So how do you find your own voice? After 40 years of not being the number one Kennedy, how do you deal with finally having to speak your own mind? Mm. In RFK's case, it was the chance he had to stand up for his beliefs without threatening anyone else's reputation but his own. He was free to say whatever he wanted, and he did exactly that. What requires is that when somebody purchases a gun through a mail order, or you send a gun or a rifle across the, a uh, state line, that you abide by the law of a particular state. All it does at the present moment, a person who's insane, a man with a long criminal record of having killed a dozen people can go in and buy a rifle. Now, if you think that, that makes sense for all of us, a person who's four years old can go buy a rifle now. A person who's six years old, a, a man in the death, and on death row in Kansas who had killed a half a dozen people 
uh, someone there sent for a rifle through the mail from Chicago for him to have a rifle while he was waiting on death row after killing people. And the rifle was sent to him. Now, does that make any sense that you should put rifles and guns in the hands of people who have long criminal records, or people who are insane, or people who are mentally incompetent, or people who are so young that they don't know how to handle rifles or guns? I just asked you. He was on a roll. In June 1966, Bobby Kennedy, accompanied by his wife Ethel, visited apartheid-era South Africa. It was a time when few politicians risked getting involved in the politics of South Africa. But Bobby was comfortable with speaking his mind. He was one of the first international leaders to stand up against the oppression of the native population of South Africa. Each time a man stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others, or strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope and crossing each other from a million different centers of energy and daring. Those ripples build a current which can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. During his tenure in the Senate, Bobby helped start a successful redevelopment project in the poor areas of Brooklyn, was a vital figure in the Poor People's March organized by Martin Luther King, and worked with Cesar Chavez in support of the workers' right. He became extremely popular among African Americans, Native Americans, and immigrant groups. But it was his position against the war in Vietnam that marked most of his legacy as a senator. Americans want to move forward. They want to better their communities, to make this country not only more livable for all Americans, but a shining example for all of the world. To free their energies and progress at home, they want peace in Vietnam, produced not by surrender of either side, but by a negotiated settlement that realistically takes into account as quickly as possible the need for all Vietnamese, and only Vietnamese, to determine the future of their own country. President Lyndon B. Johnson began bombing Vietnam in 1965. Even though he had inherited the war from JFK, LBJ was the main figure in escalating it. Kennedy, against his own party's president, proposed a three-point plan to end the war. Under the plan, America would cease bombing operations in Vietnam and U.S. troops would leave the country to be replaced by international ones. LBJ's administration, unsurprisingly, rejected the plan. This was the fuel Bobby needed to start his own presidential campaign. Hey, honey. So? Are you running or not? Nice seeing you too. Bobby, that's what everyone's been saying. You said you didn't want it. And I don't. I won't run. Johnson is seeking re-election. It's completely unrealistic for me to run. I will lose, and Kennedys don't lose. Is that the only reason? I don't keep thinking about reasons not to do something. I usually stop once I have one. Don't be a smartass with me. I don't get it. Do you want me to run or not? I want you to do what you think is right. Do you think Johnson should still be president? He's the party leader, Ethel. I don't think I have a say in it. Normal people don't have a say in it, Bobby. You do. Pete Hamill said that people are hanging your pictures on their walls. They look at you and you bring them hope. Bobby, you have an obligation of staying true to whatever it was that put those pictures on those walls. That's what a president does. I'm not a president. Neither is Johnson. Ethel. Please, 
How many people still hang LBJ's picture on the wall? Nobody wants to see Johnson rule for another term. You only have to take McCarthy out of the race. He's the candidate to beat. Johnson knows he doesn't stand a chance. You did all that research already? On June 17, 1950, I became a Kennedy. All I'm doing is acting like one. If I'm running, I'm not doing it just to oppose Johnson. I'll run because I'm convinced that this country is on a dangerous course, and because I have such strong feelings about what must be done, that I feel I'm obliged to do all I can. <laughs> what? You've been practicing your speech. We're Kennedys, aren't we? We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, let's continue our story. After much speculation, LBJ announced that he would not run for a second term. His unpopularity due to the consequences of the war in Vietnam ended his chances of a possible re-election. And the Democratic Party started the search for the best viable candidate. That person, in the eyes of some, was Bobby Kennedy. And in the eyes of others was Eugene McCarthy, a longtime congressman from Minnesota. In March 1968, Bobby finally decided he was ready to run for president. He made the announcement in the same spot where his brother, JFK, announced his candidacy eight years earlier. I am announcing today my candidacy for the presidency of the United States. I do not run for the presidency merely to oppose any man, but to propose new policies. I run because I am convinced that this country is on a perilous course and because I have such strong feelings about what must be done, and I feel that I'm obliged to do all that I can. I run to seek new policies, policies to end the bloodshed in Vietnam and in our cities, policies to close the gaps that now exist between black and white, between rich and poor, between young and old, in this country and around the rest of the world. I run for the presidency because I want the Democratic Party and the United States of America to stand for hope instead of despair, for reconciliation of men instead of the growing risk of world war. I run because it is now unmistakably clear that we can change these disastrous, divisive policies only by changing the men. Who are now making them. In 15 days, Bobby visited 16 states, storming through campaign sites like a superstar. He drew passionate electors of different backgrounds, colors, and class who saw him as the perfect figure of change. Standing on platforms of economic justice and racial equality, Bobby had already won in three state primaries, South Dakota, Indiana, and Nebraska. I don't want to win support of votes by hiding the American condition false hopes or illusions. I want us to find out the promise of the future, what we can accomplish here in the United States, what this country does stand for, and what is expected of us in the years ahead. And I also want us to know and examine where we've gone wrong. And I want all of us, young and old, to have a chance to build a better country and change the direction of the United States of America. After losing Oregon to McCarthy, the next and most important state of the primary race was California. 
For Bobby, losing California would mean the end of his chances of securing a nomination. In California's diverse and inclusive number of voters best summarized Bobby's supporters. If he couldn't win there, there would be no reason to keep running. But Bobby didn't have to worry. Not since Abraham Lincoln had a white politician been so embraced by people of color. Kennedy won California with 46% of the votes to McCarthy's 42%. It was enough to say he was very likely to secure his nomination as the presidential candidate. So uh, my thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. But Bobby's happiness didn't last long. On June 5, 1968, at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, he addressed his supporters, thanking them for the win. His next step was to address the nation. To avoid the crowd, eagerly waiting for a picture or a hug, like they did at every rally, Bobby decided to leave through the hotel's kitchen. But Sirhan Sirhan, a 24-year-old Palestinian-born American, was on Bobby's way, and he had other plans for the senator. Sirhan was there on a mission against Bobby. He shot Kennedy in the head, claiming he did it in response of Bobby's support of Israel. Sirhan was tackled to the ground, and as Bobby lay wounded, a busboy approached, placing a rosary in his hand while they waited for the ambulance. The busboy, Juan Romero, later stated that Bobby's first instinct was to ask if everyone was okay. His last words were similar. They were assuring ones. Everything's going to be okay. Bobby was rushed to the hospital shortly after, but was pronounced dead the next morning on June 6, 1968, less than five years after his brother's assassination. The idealistic underdog and, in the minds of many, the greatest president the U.S. never had was 42 years old. Bobby's body was buried in Arlington, Virginia, but a high requiem mass was held in New York City at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Members of Bobby's staff, his family, and President Lyndon B. Johnson attended the event. Ted Kennedy, the only surviving brother of the Kennedy family, wrote his eulogy. My brother need not be idealized or enlarged in death beyond what he was in life. To be remembered simply as a good and decent man who saw wrong and tried to right it, saw suffering and tried to heal it, saw war and tried to stop it. Those of us who loved him and who take him to his rest today pray that what he was to us and what he wished for others will someday come to pass for all the world. As he said many times in many parts of this nation, to those he touched and who sought to touch him, some men see things as they are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? After his death, Bobby Kennedy left behind the legacy of a man who would fight passionately for human rights, social justice, and a peaceful world. Many historians like to imagine the what-ifs of the world. Unlike JFK, Bobby died before he had a chance to deliver or to disappoint. Well, the man who came from one of the richest and most influential families in the U.S. was also the man who was able to reach the most diverse number of voters. And he did it by giving them the most valuable feeling he could, hope. Carved on his gravestone are the words of his favorite poem from Aeschylus, quote, he who learns must suffer, 
and even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart, and in our own despair, against our will, comes wisdom to us by the awful grace of God. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Famous Fates and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Famous Fates is a Spotify exclusive. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easier for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Famous Fates for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Famous Fates on Spotify, just open the app and type Famous Fates in the search bar. Remember, it's a Spotify exclusive, so you can only find the show right here. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If you want to hear more episodes like this, subscribe to Famous Fates, available exclusively on Spotify.